Praise the Lord for that worship team, right? <clears throat> Way to go after four services, they still have voices left. Myself, however, that's another issue. <clears throat> so, I'm gonna, a little laryngitis, I'm going to try and power through this, and if I stop and drink water, forgive me, okay? I'm going to ask you to get out your uh, Bibles, if you brought one with you, and go to Romans chapter 8. And uh, if it's on your phone or your iPad, maybe you want to go that way, but at the same time, I'm going to ask you to look at um, Hebrews chapter 2 and Philippians chapter 2. I know, it's a lot of work, right? And then on top of that, I'm going to ask you to pull your notes out of your bulletin. You're going to be really glad you did. So pull your notes out of your bulletin. If you have one of the bulletins with you, there's a little study notes inside there. It'll really, really be a huge help to you. I know you don't need to take notes personally, but for somebody who skipped church that might be in your life, write them down for them. Text them right now and say, you skipped church, but I'm taking notes for you, okay? All right. <laughs> Joe thought that was funny. All right. <clears throat> okay. Um, let's, let's go back to last week before we pray for a minute. Every spiritual reality is also a spiritual responsibility. Scripture is very clear about that. That's where we ended last week. Every spiritual reality is also a spiritual responsibility. So I'm going to take you through six spiritual realities this morning. Before we do that, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the reality that we have freedom in Jesus. It's the greatest reality of all. And so we're here, and we want to know you better. For those who are new to church, God, and maybe don't have a relationship with you yet, I pray that you'd be especially close to them. Illuminate their mind. God, I pray that you do that for every one of us, that we would understand you better to know who we are to you and who you are to us. Father, that we would be in a deeper relationship with you as a result of having been here. So, Father, I ask that you would take us to a place that every one of us have never been before, and that place would be to a place that's deeper so that when we leave here, we leave changed and not the same, that we would leave here understanding your call upon us, why you went to the great length that you did. God, I ask for that in the name of Jesus, the one who saved us and all God's people said, amen. Spiritual reality number one, God sent God on a mission. And if you wonder what that mission is, Scripture speaks very specifically to that mission. It says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God sent God on a mission, and the mission was to annihilate the enemy, to absolutely destroy sin and death and Satan, the very things, the power base that held humans since the beginning. So I asked you to go to Hebrews chapter 2, and here's Hebrews chapter 2, and this is the reason why I wanted you to see it. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. See a match there with Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 and 4? God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He brought him to the place where he put on flesh to become like us. This is Romans chapter 8 and verse 4 and verse 3. We're talking about the very fact that God did that. How inconceivable that God would put flesh on 
It, it almost sounds like something out of a comic book, right? We talked about that last week. How could that be that God would become one of us? Now, to understand that better, I'm going to ask you to lean all the way back to 1827 with me, to Charles Simeon, one of my favorite old dead theologians. And Charles wrote about that very issue back in that day. He said this, I wonder not at the unbelief of those who call in question the divinity of Christ. For if it were not so fully revealed as that it is impossible for a truly enlightened man to doubt it, I should be ready to doubt it myself. So inconceivable does it appear that God should become a man and make himself the surety and substitute of his own rebellious creatures. God fusing himself to the human race for a purpose to destroy the enemy. Check this, and I think this is the most important thing you need to get over before you can ever go forward in the things that we're going to talk about this morning. God, the Son, and Jesus, the man, are one in the same. Jesus wasn't a human that was just suddenly born and evolved on the earth. God, the Son, became Jesus, the man. And this may be new information to you. God, the Son, condescended, becoming one of us. And if that component fails... If that one piece is not true, we may as all well leave and go to breakfast. There's no sense in being here. There's no reason to have worship services. If that issue fails, nothing else in the matter of my eternal destiny is of any importance whatsoever if Jesus is not God. But fortunately, Scripture clarifies for us in Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus came to explain God. I'm just a simple preacher. I have simple thoughts. My thoughts are not complicated. And I do my very best to take something that's very complicated, God's Word, and explain it. Jesus comes on this planet and He says, I am the explanation. I am the source. I am the one who can make you understand who God is. So that takes us to spiritual reality number two. Jesus preexisted as God. And that's why I asked you to go to Philippians chapter 2, because verse 6 says this, Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So in the big picture, God the Son exists in eternity past before any of this is created before any of it is formed, and then he makes the decision to take the form of man. So stop right there and just let that sink in. Just drink that thought in for a moment, that God the Son becomes the Jesus of history. And for some people, you need to ease into that. It is not accurate to say that God relinquished being God to become Jesus. God cannot stop being God. So the word taking in the Greek language, it actually means, it's laban. It actually means taking in addition to. So God the Son takes in addition to himself the form of man. He's totally God, yet he's fully man. And if that issue fails then we don't have any reason to worship. So that takes us to spiritual reality number three. And this is so weighty. God, all of his interactions with his creation, 
is a condescension. And I don't mean that in a negative, insulting way. All of his interactions is a condescension. God humbles himself even to look on the angels. So to become Jesus is a humbling because he took on flesh. Psalm 113, King David writes, Who is like the Lord our God? Look at the verse yourself. Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself even to behold the things that are in heaven and on the earth? Check this. There is no barrier of impurity between God and the holy angels. They have never sinned. They have never rebelled. They exist in his presence. And yet, according to God's own word, we're told that God has to humble himself even to look upon them because why? They are created beings. God is majestic on high above all else. He is infinitely above all created things. So all contact is of the higher with the lower. So the distance between him and I don't care which one you think of, Gabriel, Michael, it doesn't matter. The highest of angels is infinite because they're created. So for God to have interactions with fallen mankind is a condescension on an unimaginable scale. We're told it's so far beyond the grasp of the angels that they strain to look into this, wanting to understand it. Look with me on the screen at 1 Peter. Peter wrote this very issue. He said, these things which have now been announced to you, these are things into which angels long to look. Why don't they understand? We've been told that they're Older than us, they're ancient. They've been here since before us. They were created at the beginning. So they're older, they're smarter, they're stronger, bigger, faster. They're created higher than man. And yet, this truth is so profound that even those beings long to look into this because it's God on high. And that he would leave and put on flesh to become one of us. It is so enormous that they long to look into it. Nothing less than God can bring us back. The distance is so far between us and God that nothing less than God can bring us back to him. So the first three realities, God sent God on a mission And God sent God on a mission resulted in the fact that Jesus, we have to accept what he says in his own word, pre-existed as God. And the third spiritual reality is that God then, therefore, must have humbled himself. He condescended to become Jesus the man. Now, the premise is our spiritual reality, that every spiritual reality also has a spiritual responsibility. So in light of that, go back to Hebrews chapter 2 with me and to verse 14 when God talks about what he did. It says this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now to this point, we've danced around the issue why. We understand what he did now because we've seen God's word. That he condescended, but why did he do this? What is the why component? We'll go to verse 15, and it tells us why. That he might do something, that he might take an action, that he might free those who through all their life have been subject to slavery because of death, it says, because of the fear of death. 
And verse 17 explains it even further. This is why he did what he did, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Check this. God moved towards you. You didn't move towards God. I didn't move towards God. God says in his own word, no man chases after me. I pursued you. I hunted for you. I chased after you. I didn't move towards God. God moved toward us to do something specific, to carry out actions on our behalf. And you find those three actions in verses 14, 15, and 17. Look again on the screen. To render powerless him who had the power of death. What is Satan's power position? His power position is that he's held death over us. Since the beginning of time when Adam and Eve rebelled, he has held the position of death as a power position, and Jesus came to take the teeth out of the monster. And in verse 15, we're told that he wanted to free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery. Are you afraid of dying this morning? Are you afraid of what's on the other side? Do you have a fear of death? God says you're like a slave because a slave has no control over their destiny. A slave can only do what their master tells them to do. They don't know what's coming up. And God says, that's you if you're afraid of death because I came to destroy death. I came to obliterate it. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be a slave. Slaves don't know their destiny. You can know your destiny. You can know where you're going. And here's the third part in verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why? Well, because we've all sinned, right? Romans We've all sinned and become short of the glory of God. We fall far short of that one who's enthroned on high. I know you know this stuff if you hang out at New Hope. But I want you to hear it again because it is so significant. Because if we have learned anything through our study of Romans, it's this. God demands righteousness and we need it. But we can't get it on our own even though many people try to. So Jesus had to become like us. He alone could carry out those specific actions to redeem us. So catch this. He came personally. He didn't just send information. He sent himself. And in doing what he has done, he has acted like himself. So go back through the spiritual realities with me again because we've got one more to go. The first one is that God sent God on a mission. The second one is that Jesus preexisted as God. And the third one is to do that, God had to humble himself to become Jesus the man. God personally came to destroy Satan and sin. And God personally came to offer freedom to anybody who will receive it. Everything we just saw is intricately related to Romans chapter 8 and verse 4. But to get there, we need to look at verse 3 again because we were just there last week. So refresh your mind on this. It says in verse 3, for what the law could not do. In other words, for what Mark Kring could not do. For all my systems of trying to be religious could not do. God did. For what the law could not do, weak as it is through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. All this monumental effort, leaving the throne on high, condescending to become like us, 
from a God who is holy, holy, holy are you. All that monumental effort to move toward you, to chase after you, because God demands righteousness, and you can't get there on your own. So he had to bring it to us. So when we come to verse 4, we see Paul make this huge statement, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Requirement. What requirement? The requirement of righteousness. God did that. God brought righteousness to you. God met his own requirement. God did that. Do you believe that God sees you as righteous this morning? If you believe that he sees you as righteous, will you say amen with me? God sees you as righteous. God sees you eternally, if you believe in Jesus Christ, as bound for eternity in heaven because of what Jesus did. Eternally views you as righteous because he sees you through the lens of Jesus. You said amen to that. If you believe that, I'm going to hold you to that in just a moment. And you're going to see why I say that. Because when we understand this requirement is that we need righteousness and God met that righteousness requirement. And Paul ends by saying, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, we have to ask ourselves that question then. Who is the in us that he's talking about? Who are those individuals that have had that righteous requirement met within them? It's like an identifier. It's like wearing a lanyard, like you've got a badge on your chest saying, this is my name. I'm the in us. Who's the in us? Go to the rest of verse 4, part B. In us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Are you noticing that on Paul's part when he writes this, it's just an assumption It's an assumption that those who have had all this done for them, who have been pursued by God, that they would be walking in righteousness. He's not admonishing. He's just saying, that's your label. That's your name. So that takes us to the sixth and final spiritual reality. God expects. See, this reality actually results in a response from you. God expects that those who belong to him will walk in righteousness. So if in the very beginning you heard me talking about every spiritual reality results in a spiritual responsibility, you're thinking, I don't need one more responsibility. (laughs) I've got lots going on in my life. I don't need any more responsibility. This is the greatest responsibility because it's from God to you. God expects that we would walk in righteousness. So the premise is, every spiritual reality results in a spiritual responsibility, so we knew hope. If you identify yourself as a believer, we are identified as those who do not walk like the rest of the world. We walk differently. So you need to ask yourself this question right now. Is this true of me? Do I walk differently than the rest of culture? And I'm not talking about being a hermit. I'm not talking about somebody who's a recluse that sets himself away and and doesn't want to be part of the world. Jesus said you'd be in the world but not of the world. What does that look like? What does that mean to walk in righteousness? Hear this. As far as the Bible is concerned, it is unthinkable for someone who belongs to God that they would continue to walk in sin. And you need to understand that word walk that Paul's using here. I'll go to that in just a moment. 
because of this reason. God does not go to this great length to free us from sin in order that we would continue sinning. He does it so that we would continue to chase after him and please him to do his will. So scripture says this in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for whose pleasure, church? For his good pleasure. So that, that means he's not freeing me from sin so that I can do whatever I want. I can do anything I want to do, but rather to do as he pleases. Your freedom from sin that Jesus gave you that you sang about, it absolutely echoes in eternity. You're destined for heaven if you believe in Jesus Christ. And that's a great truth. But it also reverberates here on planet Earth. God says there's an expectation for you. This reality, this number six point, this reality actually helps us to understand true freedom in Jesus. Because a Christian is a person who has had their sins washed away. And as a result, God has given you a new nature. And so God says, because my nature is in you, you're going to long for a different life. You're going to want to live differently. It's called sanctification. If you don't know that word, Google it later today. You get yourself familiar with it. But here's a basic explanation of it. Because you believe in Jesus Christ, God says, I'm placing my Holy Spirit in you. And as a result, a Christ follower has both the desire and the ability to live righteously. Know this. It is the one thing that your friends can see in you. Because of how you live, because of how you walk, because of the choices that you make, how do you live out your day? Because are your friends saying to you, there's something different about you? Why do you choose the choices that you make? How have you decided to walk the way that you walk? There's something different about you. What is your walk like? It's a thing that other people can see because you're living it out on this planet. Now, here's the danger in church, and I've heard this before, and it, it floats around within church circles because some will say, well, Mark, you've been telling us we're saved by grace. It's nothing that we did of ourselves, right? Right? So if I didn't do anything to earn my salvation, I can't do anything to lose my salvation. I can live however I want. Now let me talk to you like a Dutch uncle for just a minute, okay? Um, I, I am Dutch in my, my background. I had a lot of Dutch uncles in my background. And, and so sometimes they'd put me in a headlock and talk to me like a Dutch uncle. So those Dutch uncles would speak truth and they'd give me a Dutch rub every once in a while. And just kind of shaking your head. I want you to hear this. If you've got somebody in your life who says, it makes no difference what I do. I can live however I want. Hear this as a Dutch uncle. The Holy Spirit of the living God will never prompt a Christian to make such a stupid statement. That's a person who's misunderstanding grace and misunderstanding the gospel. And that is an insult to Jesus. I'm not talking about losing your salvation here. I'm talking about living in the righteousness that God has placed on you. So let me give you an example of it that may make it more practical for you. Imagine yourself walking into a beautiful river. And that, and that river is just flowing along, and you don't really appreciate the strength of the current until you walk out into it. Maybe you're a little warm, and you want to be cooled off, so you find yourself wading out into that stream. And in the midst of it, you become overwhelmed with the thought of, wow, this creation is beautiful. Look at these trees. Well, this very thing happened to me. When I was 20 years old, I was fishing in the Pier Marquette River, and it was February. 
And I had put my waders on, and I made myself uh, a way out into the stream, standing in the middle of the stream in February. It's four degrees above zero. And I was overwhelmed with the beauty of the trees. They were laden with snow, and I could hear the birds singing. And as the sun's coming up above the pine trees, it begins melting the snow, and it's crackling and dropping to the ground. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. I'm watching my fishing line moving up and down the stream. And I didn't even realize that my foot had become caught underneath a stump. And when I went to turn to make a way out of the stream, I couldn't unlodge my foot, and the current began pushing me, and it took me under, and my waders filled with water, and it took me right to the bottom of the stream. Now, you can imagine when it's February what that feels like. And I came up out of the water, and I didn't even realize there was somebody there with their hands stretched out until my eyes covered with water looked towards the bank, and there was one of my cousins with his arm reaching out trying to grab me to pull me in, and he did. Got me to the edge of the bank, and I laid there next to my rescuer who had just pulled me from the rapidly pulling torrent that wanted to take me down. How stupid would I be to jump right back into that same river again? How dumb would that be? God's saying, I dragged you from that thing that wanted to kill you. I pulled you to the shore. Why would you want to go back into the very thing you were rescued from? See, if you're in Christ, you've got to check yourself this morning. Am I living differently as a result of the rescue? Am I different than the culture around me? I'm in it, but am I of it? Is your eternal destiny leaking out of you today? Is that visible to people? Can they see it in you? Who is these people that Paul's talking about when he says, in us? I said, it's like a, a name badge on you. Well, look at the screen at just these four words, in us, those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the things of God, the higher place that he's called us to. I want you to hear me very clearly on this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, Having the mark, the identifying mark of the Holy Spirit within you is not something that belongs just to those who are super spiritual or those who are more mature than the rest. Every single person who believes in Jesus Christ has the spirit of the living God within them. Amen? We just want to make sure we're all on the same page on that. At the moment of salvation, God places his spirit within you. And so you have that ability. No one who belongs to Jesus is without the Holy Spirit. And it's actually the Holy Spirit of God who allows you to walk in God's will. One of the great freedoms that Jesus gives us, and he gives us many, one of the great freedoms that he gives us is the ability to obey God. So to end this, I want you to see the Greek word for the word walk that Paul used. Peripateo. And this particular word is the word for walk. And I'm asking, how are you walking? Because this is what Paul had in mind here. This particular word has a, a bit of a strength behind it because he's talking about something you're habitually doing. What's your bent of life? Look at the last part of that definition. What are you occupied with? Are you occupied with the things of the world? Are you occupied with the things of God? To the degree that your friends can actually look at you and say, there is something remarkably different about you. Because the rest of culture, just, it's something stands out about you. I can't quite put my finger on it. 
Paul used this same word when he was talking to Christians in different places. And I want you to see an example of that. Peripateo is in Ephesians. When he's writing to the church at Ephesus, he's writing to Christians. And he says, Peripateo, no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Understand, he's not disrespecting the Gentiles. There's a lot of Christian Gentiles. It's used as a reference to those who are using the Greek thinking mind. They're still thinking like the world in the futility of their mind. They're trying to figure things out and they're philosophizing. Paul says, don't go there. He's asserting that a true believer, whether mature or immature, does not walk that way, not according to the flesh. And there are no exceptions whatsoever because every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So every believer is going to show some evidence of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Galatians 5, right? So Paul says in Galatians 5, don't walk that way. Walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5, 16. Peripateo by the Spirit. And you're not going to carry out the desires of the flesh. You finding some sinful issue in your life pulling you down? Scripture says lean more into the Spirit. Go to God for your strength. It is God's great desire that you would live out the perfect righteousness that he transferred to you. And I asked you earlier, do you believe that God sees you as righteous? And you said, amen, he does, right? Well, that righteousness that he sees you with, that he's using to transfer you to heaven because he sees you through Jesus, he's saying, live that out in your life on a practical basis. Let your positional righteousness be reflected in your practical righteousness. So every spiritual reality translates to a spiritual responsibility that you and I We'd be like a bunch of Jesus mirrors, little tiny mirrors, just reflecting the source of that light. And we would be looking like that one who died to save us. And I got good news for you. It is that Holy Spirit that is within you that gives you both the desire and the ability. Now, some people are going to be thinking, well, (laughs) you spent all that time in Romans 7 telling us the flesh is weak. That we're still bound to sin because we live on this planet. Absolutely, it's true. But at your core, you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. In the image of the one who bought you. So no true Christian is going to be with perfect life throughout the course of this life on this planet. You just can't get there. You're going to struggle with sin. But that's no excuse for walking peripateo, a habitual way, occupying your mind in sin. Because God's power is in you. First John 4, what does it say? Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Praise God for that. That's the Holy Spirit. Greater is the one who's in me, the Holy Spirit, than Satan who's in the world. At the cross, church. At the cross, Jesus broke the power of Satan. He broke the power of sin, and he crushed it. We don't have to answer to it anymore. So Jesus, when he's headed to the cross, he's about to be crucified. It's a couple days before, and he knows what's going to happen. He's approaching Jerusalem, and he turns to the guys who are following him, and he says to them, you need to understand the reality. Judgment is on this world. John 12, 31, now judgment is on this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Talking about Satan. Satan no longer has any strength. 
as a result of what Jesus did on the cross. Circle back with me to Hebrews 2. I'm bringing this plane in for a landing. Hebrews 2.14. It would be an act of unimaginable condescension for God just to wear humanity, just to put us on fallen man. But he didn't stop there. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And bear down with me on those three words. He might destroy. Paul has done something remarkable. He's borrowed a term from the military world, katargeo, and he brought it over into the New Testament. When he uses the word destroy, it literally means to obliterate to annihilate. So Jesus comes and he brings something with him, a power such as the world has never known. God the Son in Jesus the man. Now in the military, if you have a weapon greater than your enemy's weapon, you render your enemy's weapon useless. In other words, you can't use a rowboat against a United States Navy destroyer. If the destroyer is there, it's going to obliterate the rowboat. God chooses the weapon, the king of kings, to come and be the destroyer, if you'll forgive the analogy, to literally annihilate the enemy, and God does not do things halfway. Jesus descended from the throne of heaven for victory, and there were no peace negotiations whatsoever. He doesn't sit down across the table and talk with Satan. How did he destroy death? He went into death, and he went through it, and praise God, he came out the other side. So literally, Jesus can say, because I live, you will live also. Those are three beautiful words in the Bible. You will live, and he's talking about eternal life. Three beautiful words right from God. The one who came and said, I I came for you. I suffered for you. I, I died for you. And the next time you think that God doesn't give a rip about you, and he's not concerned, and he's distant, and he doesn't care, you remember this. Because he said, I did this for you to bring you into relationship with me. Even though I am high, I am mighty, I am majestic, I am there for you. I am the God who comes. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us and talked to us and healed us and loved us and died for us. Who knew hope among us can measure the gap between the throne of heaven and the cross of Calvary. How distant is that measurement that God would condescend to become Jesus the man. And in doing what he has done, he has acted like himself and nothing less than this is sufficient to meet my need. Nothing less than this is sufficient to meet your need because only Jesus can give you back your destiny. 
Only Jesus can restore to you what's been stolen from you. And if you're a believer in Jesus, as a result of believing in him, you're cleansed of your sin and forgiven by God. And God says, you know what? On top of that, I'm going to give you my own nature. I'm going to put my own spirit within you. Therefore, you're going to long for a different life. You're not going to want to live like everybody else. You're not going to live according to the flesh. So Paul sits down and writes this masterpiece, even just chapter 8, verse 4. Just that sentence, we are those new hope who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. See, every spiritual reality translates to a spiritual responsibility. So God's saying, check yourself. How you walk in these days? How, how am I doing with this reality? I'm going to pray for us that way. I'm going to ask you to join me in that. Would you pray with me that God would be our source of strength as we evaluate ourselves? Father, this auditorium is filled with men and women, students, children, who in this moment might feel a sense of, like, I'm not doing so good with this. Father, you are gracious and you are merciful and you are kind and compassionate. And if we've learned anything about you, it's that you're long-suffering. And while it seems like we want to keep jumping back in the river again, you're screaming to us loud through Romans. You're telling us not to do that. Father, at great price you rescued us, and so we recognize that as a result of having the Holy Spirit within us, we can live differently. But my fear, Father, is that we're going to try and do this on our own, in our own strength. So I pray for these individuals that have gathered here who name the name of Jesus, that they will lean into you for your strength, that I will do the same thing. Where our words have been loose, control them. Where our mind has gone to places it shouldn't go, God, help us to think on the things that are lovely. Think on these things. Keep us from the thought life, Father, that takes us back into the ways of the flesh. And God, I know that our thought life translates to actions and the things that we do with our hands that we should never, ever touch. God, keep us from that. So I pray for your church. Keep us, Father, in your strength, not in our own ability, that we would shun the things that are of the flesh and we would chase after you with our whole heart. Father, bring this as a reality through the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us because of Jesus who died for us. And we ask this in his matchless eternal name. And all God's people said, amen. Before I let you go, two things. Um, I'm really looking forward to celebrating the 10th anniversary with you next week out on the new property. That'll be huge to have all four services to come together, be able to worship together, and just talk about what God's done. But at that event, um, I wanted you to know that there's going to be some offering buckets there. 
And I'm really encouraging you to consider what you might be able to do to help us get the building built. And I know some of you are giving towards it already, and praise the Lord for that. And, and some of you give on a regular basis to the general offering. But it's in advance and in honor of the fact we're celebrating a 10th anniversary. I'm just asking you to think about what can I do to help New Hope get that building built? Because we really need to build that building. God's doing great things since we've gone to four services, and he's continuing to expand the church. He's responding to our step of faith. But I'm asking you just to pray about that think about that in advance. And here's the last thing. There'll be somebody after this service who'll be standing over here and be ready to pray with you if you want to pray with someone. They'll have a little lanyard on the front and just say a prayer warrior. And if you want to, just come on up to them. They'll take you to someplace quieter. They'll pray with you right there if you have something on your heart. Can I ask you to stand right now? I'm just going to put God's blessing on you. The Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.